Ella Ezkara. These I recall, and my soul melts with sorrow. Those words frame a part of this morning's service, often designated as martyrology. Ella Ezkara tells the legend of the martyrdom of ten rabbis killed by the Roman authorities following the Bar Kokhba revolts. We remember those who gave their lives to leave us a legacy of a love of Torah and a legacy of love of our homeland. It's become customary in Ela Ezkara to also remember others, those who lost their lives during the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the Holocaust, and Israel's wars. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. The surprise invasion from Syria and Egypt into Israel on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar caught Israelis off guard, even though there were clear signs that they were preparing to attack. Israel was outnumbered 37 to 1. The combined Egyptian and Syrian armies had amassed 128,000 soldiers, 2,150 tanks, and 2,600 artillery and heavy mortars. Israel had only 3,450 soldiers, 270 tanks, and 60 artillery pieces to face them. Israeli forces suffered heavy losses. By the war's end, more than 2,600 Israelis were killed, 7,500 were wounded, 11,000 taken captured. Israel's population in 1973 was 3 million. In perspective, that would be the equivalent of 28,800 soldiers being killed in a war. The Yom Kippur War lasted only 19 days. During World War II, which lasted six years, 45,400 Canadian soldiers lost their lives. To personalize the magnitude of Israel's loss of what the Yom Kippur War cost us in lives and almost cost us in the state itself, 2,600 people, that's slightly less than the 2,800 people that were in attendance on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Ella Ezkara, these I recall, and my soul melts with sorrow. Israel recently released thousands of documents and records of the intelligence failure that preceded the war. Defense Minister Moshe Dayan acknowledged to Prime Minister Golda Meir, a day after the attack began, we had an assessment that was based on the previous war. It was incorrect. Moreover, even when there were clear signs that there was going to be an attack on the morning of Yom Kippur, Israel refrained from a preemptive attack as it did in 67 because U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger had strongly warned Meir that she must not be responsible for initiating another Mideast war. She concluded, if we strike first, we won't get help from anybody. 
A year ago in May, a group from Betzedek participated in Camp Ramah's annual or biannual bike and hike Israel trip. One of our stops on the bike ride was in the Golan Heights, a place called Emek Habacha, the Valley of Tears. It's named that because of Israel's catastrophic losses in stopping the Syrian tanks from taking the Golan. At Emek Habacha, I heard again the story of Rami Swet, a veteran of the war and a survivor of the tank battle there. Rami's parents, Svi and Ruth, had made Aliyah from Europe before the, sec before the Second World War. They lost their entire families in the Shoah. Both enlisted in the British Army. Tzvi was a commando and Ruth was a nurse. They met in a hospital after Ruth arrived to translate for a wounded Israeli who had lost his legs. They were married after the war and had five children, three boys and two girls. All served in the IDF, the boys in the Armored Corps. Yair, the middle son, was a platoon commander and Rami, the youngest son, was a new officer. On the eve of the war, they were called up to the Golan Heights. Rami's war began when four Syrian fighter jets attacked his position. I knew Yair was in the area too, he said, but I did not know exactly where. He recalls only later, I learned that he was a few hundred meters from me in the valley. Rami's tank was hit, causing him to temporarily lose his vision. At the hospital, he heard one of the wounded say that his company commander was killed. Someone asked the name, and the wounded man answered, Sweat. And that's how Rami learned that his brother Yair had been killed. When Rami was released from the hospital, he learned what happened. Yair was killed on October 7th, the second day of the war. The tank before him on the slope was hit and the soldiers jumped out. Yair went to rescue them, a mortar struck, and he was killed. Ella Ezkara, Ella Ezkara, these I recall and my soul melts with sorrow. At this point in telling the story, if you've been to Emek Habacha and you've heard the story or one similar to it, the guide will pause and tell you exactly where the story unfolded relative to where you're standing. Just over there, the guide will say. And he'll point to a shrub about 100 meters away. Rami had witnessed, had witnessed what had happened, but did not know at the time that it was his brother. Nevertheless, he wanted to return to the fighting, but fearing that his family would sustain two losses, the IDF denied his request. Rami also learned that his older brother was wounded in the war, and so instead he went to visit him in Jerusalem. Following the visit, he went to tell his parents that his brother, their son, Yair, was killed. His mother had two requests. The first was that he go back to the front because otherwise, she figured, how can you look 
your comrades in arms in the eye. And second, that before he did, he go and find his father and tell him the news. Rami's dad was working at the family-owned gas station. And as Rami tells the story, dad made a tear in his jumpsuit, hugged me, and said, go back to the front. The battle at Emek Habacha is one of the most well-known stories of the Yom Kippur War. That is because Rami Sweat created the Yom Kippur War Memorial Educational Center to tell the stories of those who served, including his own. Today, on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, through the recitation of, El of Ella Ezkara, and because it's also Yisker, we remember at Nishmot Achenu Vachotenu Yisrael. We remember the souls of our brothers and sisters, the soldiers of the Israel Defense Forces. Shemasru et nafshotehem al kidush Hashem ha'am v'ha'aretz, who gave up their lives for the sanctification of God's holy name in defense of our people and in defense of our homeland. Later this morning, we'll remember in another way. Today, across Israel and the Jewish world, we will sing Unatana Tokef to the music composed on Kibbutz Beit Hashita in northern Israel 17 years after the war's end. The magnitude of the casualties, as we discussed, was enormous. Maddie Friedman, journalist who grew up at Beth Zedek, reported no community in the country had suffered more losses per capita than Beit Hashita. On the day after the war's end, 11 small army trucks pulled through the kibbutz gates, headlights on, even though it was daytime. Each of those trucks carried a coffin. The dead men were the kibbutz's next generation, young workers and fathers, most of them reservists. For a small and tightly knit community, it was a nearly incomprehensible loss. There was no morning glory, it was war, it wasn't fair. Ella Ezkara, these I recall, and my soul melts with sorrow. Nineteen years after the war, Yair Rosenblum, one of Israel's most famous songwriters, came to the kibbutz. As Yom Kippur approached, he sought inspiration for a new song. Flipping through the Maxor, he came upon Unatana Tokef. Kibbutz member Michal Shalev wrote about that moment. Yeir read it and knew this was what he was looking for. He didn't shut his eyes all night and waited for the morning for the house to be empty of people and for a chance to play uninterrupted. When Shalev arrived around 10 a.m., she found Rosenblum writing and crying. He played for her a tune that he had written for the prayer. It was a melding of European cantorial melodies, Sephardic tunes, and modern Israeli music. It was one of those moments in which you feel, she said, shaken and in excitement that has no room for words. 
We will also remember the Yom Kippur when we hear Unatana Tokif this morning. Furthermore, we will remember that Israel continues to fight for its existence, still sending its young people to the IDF and wondering who will live and who will die. But on this Yom Kippur, there's another battle going on. This battle is not on the battlefield with soldiers, tanks, and artillery. This battle occurs in the streets, the Knesset, and Beit Mishpat Elyon, the Supreme Court of Israel. The judicial governmental crisis has become, as Patrick Kingsley writes in the New York Times, a proxy for even a greater battle among Israelis about the future of their country, as well as about what it means to be both a Jewish state and a democratic one. Israel was founded in 1948 with a declaration of independence inspired by Jewish values and Jewish conscience. The state of Israel, it declares, will be based on precepts of liberty, justice, and peace taught by the Hebrew prophets, will uphold the full social and political equality of all its citizens without distinction of race, creed, or sex, will guarantee full freedom of conscience, worship, education, and culture, will safeguard the sanctity and the inviolability of the shrines and holy places of all religions. In 2015, President Ruby Rivlin delivered a speech at the annual Herzliya conference in which he warned that Israel's demographic changes could harbinger severe economic and social issues that will threaten the future of the Jewish state and bring about a new Israeli order. There is no longer, he said, clear, a clear majority nor clear minority groups. He described four Israeli tribes, secular, national religious, Haredi, and Arab. They are similar in size, essentially different from each other, and steadily growing closer in size. Most disconcerting, said Rivlin, is that there is a mutual ignorance and lack of common language between the four populations, which he predicted will lead to an increase in the tension, fear, hostility, and competitiveness amongst them. And then, almost prophetically, Rivlin asked, will this be a secular, liberal state, Jewish and democratic? Will it be a state based on Jewish religious law or a religious democratic state? Will it be a state of all its citizens, of all its national ethnic groups? Historically, writes Kingsley, political coalitions between rival factions helped reduce the tensions while the Supreme Court generally acted as a guarantor of minority rights and secular values. Now, the profound demographic and social shifts have nudged the balance of power toward ultra-conservative and ultra-nationalistic groups. This is the battle that Israelis are currently waging. It is a battle for the soul of Israel, and it is tearing at the seams of Klal Yisrael, at the unity of the Jewish people. 
which is why this crisis should also be of great concern to us in the diaspora. Rabbi Danny Gordis, during a recent podcast, reminds us that we are a worldwide Jewish people committed to justice, morality, and to making Israel a country that our children and our grandchildren can be proud of. We, as conservative Jews, have always upheld the value of pluralism and unity without uniformity as a core moral value. To silence our moral voice now will place us on the wrong side of history. To be effective, each of us must learn more about the complex issues at play legally and politically and participate in forums that promote understanding and dialogue and build a shared society. Israel needs our moral voice now more than ever before. In his book, Impossible Takes Longer, Gordis asks if Israel has fulfilled the dreams of its founders. Israel was meant, he writes, to first and foremost reset the existential condition of the Jewish people. Has it done that? It has. Perfectly? Far, far from it. Has the effort on balance been worthwhile? For Gordis, and I would add for me too, the answer is a resounding yes. Even with everything about Israel that frustrates, infuriates, and pains me. In discussing the future, Gordis suggests that Israel's next goal, that the next goal of Zionism, must be to take what we have created and to continue to build. But what must be built now is not the infrastructure of a state or an army to defend it. What must be built now is a society that is based on mutual respect, mutual concern, and more tolerance. Israel, he writes, has defied the odds at every turn. And if it is to survive, it needs to continue to defy them. I would add, especially now. We must remember that our strength has always come from our shared values and our unity. Ella Ezkara and Yizkor come from the same Hebrew root, Zachar. It's about memory. On Yom Kippur, we gather to remember. We remember that change is always possible, that to be human is to make mistakes, learn from them, and grow. These are the lessons that are embedded in our Machsor and our Torah. They are the values for which our ancestors, ancient, modern, and personal, not only gave their lives to defend, but by which they lived. They left us a legacy, a love of a Torah, and a love of Israel. Today, we remember loved ones who deepened our connection to Jewish tradition, Jewish values, and Israel. Their memories live in us and inspire us to the way we live. We pray for life, but not simply a life. We pray for a life of meaning and of a life of purpose. Ella Ezkara, these I remember. For them and for those we love, we turn to Yizkor. In our booklets, 
We'll turn to page seven and read responsively for read responsively on the theme of remembering. Someone laughs a certain way and suddenly I'm seeing you. The radio plays a song you used to love and it feels as if you're here listening. The evening, night, the evening light glistens on trees and my heart stings after so many years with the loss of you. The whole family gathers together and each of us quietly feels the absence of you. Together, Holy One on high, Holy One of our most inmost being, some of us are consoled for our loss. Some of us today still feel consoled, inconsolable. Some of us bear deep wounds in our heart. Others have healed. All of us remember today those we have loved who no longer share with us this land of the living. Grandmothers and grandfathers, mothers and fathers, sons, daughters, sisters, brothers, beloved husbands, wives, partners, cherished relatives and friends, sorely missed members of our community. Eternal One, what are we human beings that you shall take note of us? What are we frail mortal creatures that you shall even consider us? We are like a breath, our days like a passing shadow. I am mindful of how brief life is, for to be human is to see death. How grateful we are for the once presence of those we loved, to have touched their soul, to have looked in their eyes, to have felt their land. Life matters. Oh, teach us to number our days that we may attain a heart of wisdom, that we may remember and mourn those we have lost and still celebrate the gift of their lives, the gift of life. God, my God, you are my rock and my ultimate refuge. I put my trust in you.